Good morning, everyone. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris. I am pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church and just delighted to welcome you. This is the third message in a series entitled The Four Seasons of Marriage. We have been through springtime, summer, and today I want us to talk about fall, the the autumn years of marriage. Open up your Bibles to the Song of Solomon, Song of Songs, chapter 8. Start in verse 6. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 6. Back in the 1970s, there was a group of theologians by the name of Three Dog Night, and Three Dog Night uh, said this to quote, one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do, two can be as bad as one. Interesting. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do, two can be as bad as one. What are they talking about? Two can be as bad as one. What are they saying? Somebody? Somebody? Yeah, you can still be lonely, absolutely. And and that's what I want us to talk about today. Uh, It is one thing to be single and alone. It's another thing altogether to be married and to be caught in that suffering of aloneness. As a matter of fact, when God looked down at at the Garden of Eden and saw Adam, uh, the man alone, God said that it was not good for one of us to be alone, and that is why God brought the woman to the man so that God could give to the human family that gift of lifetime companionship, that a man and woman might know that joy of lifetime companionship. And, And truly, Scripture in the book of Ephesians says that the love of a wife and husband is the closest thing to God's love for us that you're ever going to see on earth. But it doesn't always go that way. We can be honest enough to say it doesn't always go that way. And that is why if you've ever been in a difficult marriage or a difficult season of marriage, you understand completely what it means when it says one is a lonely number, but two can be as bad as one. There's something about being caught in uh, a suffering and difficult marriage that's very difficult to explain or endure. Now, as I move into this third season, I'm not suggesting that the third season, that the autumn of marriage is, is, is all uh, about difficulty and loss and struggle. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Actually, I am now in the third season of marriage. Case and I have been married 26 years. I think we qualify now. We are empty nesters. Our son is away in college. We are uh, back to just the two of us. And I'm just here to tell you, this is probably the best time of our marriage. It's, it's kind of like a new springtime. It's just back to the two of us. And there's nothing empty about the nest for us. I'll, I'll just say that. We're very fulfilled, very satisfied, very happy. But, but, but listen to me. If you've lived this long and if you're into that third season of marriage, by this time, a lot has changed, and a lot is changing. And as you've heard me say by now, learning how to change together, learning how to navigate those changes of life is probably one of the most important parts of marriage, learning how to love and keep love alive through all of the changes and all of the seasons. So that brings us today to the Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. Just two verses here out of the Song of Solomon. Understand that the Song of Solomon is a collection of of love poems, erotic poems. Uh, These two verses are different, though. In all of the the writings in the Song of Solomon, you never find love just talked about in general or in the abstract. It's always praising the, the pleasure and the desire of the two lovers, their experience of love. But here is the one place where the Song of Solomon stops and just talks about love in in itself. And this is what it says. Start in verse 6 with me, and you'll catch on. Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 6. 
the woman is speaking. She says, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death, it's jealousy as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. If a man tried to buy love with all his wealth, his offer would be utterly scorned. Back to verse 6. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. What is she saying? This is the woman talking. And she says, place me like a seal upon your heart. What's she saying? What's she asking for? Somebody tell me. What does it mean to say, place me like a seal? What is a seal in the, in the ar, ar, not, not that kind of seal. <laughs> what is a seal in the ancient world? What kind of seal is she talking about? Yeah, it, it would be like something like a ring perhaps or a cylinder that would have a, a symbol, a personal symbol, and you would press that ring or, or, or you'd roll that, that cylinder across moist clay or maybe to put that ring in ink and, and, and press it into uh, on paper or into hot wax. The idea is you would leave an impression, you'd leave some sort of mark of identity. If you have my seal on you, that means that you belong to me. It's a sign of ownership. It's kind of interesting because it's the woman asking for this kind of possession. She wants him to belong to her. She wants all of him to belong to all of her. Do you understand? And it's kind of interesting because in the ancient world, you might not have expected the woman to take this kind of initiative. You wouldn't expect the woman to be the one to say, I want to own you. But that's exactly what happens. The woman in the Song of Solomon is very forward, and she takes all the initiative. And in this case, she's saying, I want you to be my possession. I want to own you. I want you to place my seal upon your heart. So put her seal on his heart means that, that her ownership, her, her, her mark of identity is going to be first on his inward man, on your heart, your feelings, the person you are on the inside. But also put it on your arm. He's going to get a tattoo for her, understand? He put my seal upon your arm. The idea is her mark of identity is inside and outside. In other words, everything that he is, his entire person, he belongs to her. So place me like a seal, a permanent seal on your heart. Place me like a seal on your arm. And then what comes next? Because love is as strong as death, all right? So what she's actually asking for is a, a promise of, of permanence, a promise of permanence. I want you to put my name, my seal upon your heart, inside and outside, you belong to me. That This seal signifies permanence. You're mine. You belong to me. It's, it's, it's irrevocable. It's, it's, it's complete. So understand, this, this promise of permanence is a part of marriage. It's a part of their relationship, but a part of marriage for one simple reason. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, because love is as strong as death. So very simply, this prominence, this promise of permanence is a part of marriage because love never ends. Love is permanent. Love does not fizzle up. Love doesn't flame up and then fizzle. It doesn't, doesn't spring up early and then eventually die down. Love's not like that. Love is strong as death. Love never fails. Love never ends, the scripture says. 
So the woman asked for this promise of permanence. Write me like a seal upon your heart. It'll never be revoked. You belong to me forever because love never ends. You see that? Love is as strong as death. It's jealousy as enduring as the grave, the jealousy. Jealousy for us is usually not a positive word. Jealousy is usually a negative thing. We think of an insecure person, a controlling person who's, who just expresses that desire to control through, through an ugly side that we call jealousy. But in Scripture, jealousy isn't always that ugly side that you're thinking about. There are two relationships in Scripture where jealousy is considered righteous and appropriate. The first is God's love for us, God's relationship with us. Scripture says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. That simply means that his love for us is so pure, it is so focused, that it can tolerate no rivals. You shall have no other gods before me. Understand, God is a jealous God. He can tolerate no rivals because his love is perfect. His love is pure. Now, also in Scripture, that perfect, pure love between a wife and husband has a kind of jealousy that is righteous, and it's the same sort of thing. It's righteous because pure love, perfect love, can have no rivals. If you belong to me and I belong to you, then I shouldn't be sharing you with every man that drives a car around Sonic. You understand? There is an an exclusiveness to the marriage bond, an exclusiveness to true love which will tolerate no rivals. So that's why the scripture says, love is as strong as death, it's jealousy, it's passion, as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire, the brightest kind of flame. The Hebrew there says, love flashes like fire, it flashes with the fire of God. Amazing. Verse seven, many waters cannot quench love, nor can rivers drown it. Understand the point? Love is unquenchable. Love doesn't fail. Love never ends. Now, interestingly, if there are only these two verses, the only place in all of the Song of Solomon where love's going to be talked about like this in general, the, the nature, the, the essence of love, then it's interesting that, that this is the way it is expressed. In other words, if you're only going to talk about love in, in, in this many words, why do you have to use words like death and grave and fire and flood. Why do you think? If in the whole book this is the only time you're going to talk about the essence of love, why must you talk about love being stronger than death and fire and flood? Because if you're going to love, you're going to face death and fire and flood. Do you understand? Actually, it's a part of Scripture. It, the scripture always tells the truth. And sometimes when we talk about love, we're not honest enough. But Scripture is, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28, this is Paul speaking. He says, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Happy Valentine's Day, people. We don't talk about this. Paul was honest. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul's a single man. And Paul, in all earnestness, goes so far as to say, I wish everybody was single because being married is just hard. It's hard. And once you get married, you take on a whole new dimension to all of your problems. I just think everybody ought to stay single. That's what Paul said. But not everybody's going to, so go ahead and get married if you have to, Paul says. But, But understand, Paul takes very, very seriously 
the fact that once you get married, you're going to take on a, a whole new set of troubles. We don't tell young people this. We sort of do. We sort of put it in the fine print of the marriage license. But for the most part, people get married these days, and I, I really believe they, they don't ever expect that they're really going to face any kind of trouble. They seem absolutely unprepared for any amount of trouble. As a matter of fact, when trouble first hits a lot of young couples, if you'll notice, they just nearly freak out. They really had not anticipated that they would ever face any kind of difficulty as as a couple. They never anticipated that they might have to suffer as as a couple. And, And you combine that with the fact that if the suffering lasts very long, if the suffering begins to endure, this couple will probably inevitably begin thinking about abandoning the marriage. You understand? They weren't prepared for the fact that marriage brings trouble, so when trouble hits, they abandon the marriage. If you pay attention to the traditional wedding vows, traditional wedding vows actually also told you the truth, but it's the truth from a, from a past generation, so the, the old vows say, I, 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 I will love, honor, cherish you uh, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health. And, and to break that down, they're talking about the threats to marriage as they understood it in their day. And the threats for them were primarily exterior threats, things that came from the outside, things like illness. That's why in the vow it's just in sickness and in health because our, our grandparents of, of a previous generation, they feared illness. It, it was a fact of their lives that was devastating for them. And that's why it's, it was a real threat to mention on your, on your wedding day. They had to face things like polio and, and measles and, and the plague and, and tuberculosis and all sorts of diseases that honestly were devastating. If, if, if measles came through a community, half the children in the community could die. Take a walk at any of the old cemeteries. There's an old one up the road called Old Union. It's where my grandparents are buried. There's this whole section of Old Union Cemetery with itty-bitty tombstones. And they're all children. And it's during a measles outbreak back in my grandparents' day. But understand, all of these kids died, like a large number of kids in the community. That was the world that they lived in. Illness was devastating. And if you survive something like polio or tuberculosis, you could be debilitated for the rest of your life, which is to mean you couldn't work. And if you couldn't work, then you had the, the other giant threat that faced the past generations, and, and that was poverty. I mean, poverty. I know that a lot of couples these days feel like they don't have all the money that they want, but let's be really honest. Most of us are living very well. As a matter of fact, if you're a young couple, you probably had more after your very first bridal shower. You understand? You remember? You had more after your very first bridal shower than your great-grandparents had in their first 10 years of marriage. That's not an exaggeration. You had more after one bridal shower than your grandparents ever would have had in, in, in 10 years. So for the most part, we don't know poverty like they knew poverty. I mean, for a lot of couples back in the day, it was a struggle to put food on the table. And sometimes they literally didn't know where the next meal would be coming from. You with me? 
So when they talked about sickness and health for rich or for poor, they were talking about genuine fears and genuine threats to marriage, threats like illness and poverty. This is a generation that came through the Great Depression. This is the generation that fought Nazis. You understand? So when you have these kinds of threats, real threats and fear of, of illness and, and plague and, and Nazis and poverty, you tend not to be really aggravated by the, by the little things, the, the little worries, which is what brings me to marriages in, in our day and age. We don't have a lot of external threats. We don't fear illness in the same way. We don't fear poverty in, in the same way. And the threats for us don't always, don't always come at us from the outside. It's more inward things. It's more inside the relationship. And it has more to do with our affluence and honestly our boredom. We live in a very different day and age. You know, I, I've had a couple in my office that was near divorce because she couldn't stand the way he chews. You understand? She didn't like the way he chews. Now, Ma'am, just let me say this to you. If, if your biggest concern is li- in life is the way he chews, you don't have a lot to worry about. You understand? Your great-grandmother was worried that they wouldn't have anything to chew. You don't like the way he chews. It, it's a very different day and age for couples these days. Our, our threats are different. Couples that I talk to these days often struggle with things like Pornography. I mean, your great-grandfather would have had to get in a car or, or on a horse and go to Nashville or some big city into the, you know, the, the dankest part of the city to, to possibly get his hands on what your child can find with one simple Google search in your living room now. You understand? There, there are very destructive things now that are very, very available, things like pornography, the opportunities to gamble. Gambling destroys marriages these days. And, and often the, the, the faults and the flaws in, in individual partners, the moral behavior, the number of people now who begin to stray in their marriage simply by uh, looking somebody up on Facebook or other social media. It's, it's just a different day and age. We don't fear poverty, but money continues to be the number one reason for divorce these days. Why? Now, we don't face the threats that our grandparents face, but, but I'm not taking anything away from the fact that marriages are threatened these days and the threats bring real pain. Understand? Marriage is all about enduring hardship. Which leads me to say this. Learning how to understand and endure hardship is probably the most important thing in your marriage. Nobody probably told you this on the front end, but by the time you get into the second or third season, you're going to understand that learning how to endure hardship is probably the most important thing about your marriage. It has less to do with whether or not one of you gains weight. It has less to do with how much money you have or whether you can afford the house you want or whether somebody gets to stay home or whether both partners have to work. These are all issues that you have to face. But learning how to understand and endure actual hardship is the most important thing you're going to have to do. Because very, very simply, marriage involves pain. I know they didn't put this inside your Valentine yesterday, but marriage involves pain because life involves pain. You understand? Life is hard, and life involves pain, and since life involves pain, your marriage is going to involve pain. Now, with everything else I've said about 
the, the present generation of, of young people and, and new married couples. Understand this, uh, my, my generation and those behind me, we are probably, uh, unlike our parents and grandparents, we have a very, very low tolerance for pain. We don't do pain. We don't even like to be uncomfortable. You understand? We're very, very different. I'm nothing like my grandfather. I'm a very different kind of man. I like air conditioning. Understand? And refrigeration. If our ice maker breaks, we, we got to go stay in a hotel. Uh, I mean, understand? We don't suffer very well. We don't like pain. Uh, again, my generation, we have invented and we now use uh, painkillers and medications like the world has never known. We simply don't think that we should have to endure any moment of discomfort. So, you take people like us, people that we, we very low tolerance for pain, and you add just a little bit of pain and pain in marriage, and what do you think is going to happen? You end up with, with suffering spouses, people in pain, and I'm not taking away from it. The pain is real. It's not the same pain your grandmother faced, but it's, it's, it's a different kind of pain, but it's real. So you end up with, with suffering spouses, people in a marriage, and the marriage is causing pain. So what happens is you have a man and a woman who will do nearly anything to stop the pain. They, they, they have a low tolerance for it anyway, but now they're caught in a marriage itself, which is miserable. It, it inflicts pain. And so now you got a man and woman who are gonna, by, by any means necessary, try to consider any option that might bring an end to their misery. All right? Lots of couples make the very too fast conclusion that divorce would bring an end to the pain. Abandoning the marriage will, will stop the pain. And again, they're at the point of nearly doing anything they can think of just to stop the pain. What they don't understand, of course, is that abandoning the marriage brings a whole new kind of pain. It's some things you never even imagined. You understand, for one thing, you're never really gonna be done with this woman. You're always gonna have her in your life. I mean, the scripture says you leave your father and mother, you cling to your wife, and the two become one flesh. You just think that you can unscramble the egg. You just think that you can be done with him, but you're never fully done. And if you have children to throw into this mix, I'm telling you, abandoning the marriage only brings a whole new kind of pain, and it's never really going to be over. So you have this suffering couple that is considering nearly anything that they can imagine, and they too frequently conclude that divorce must be the answer. So, on a very regular basis, I have people in my office saying, Pastor Tim, what exactly does the Bible say about divorce? And I guess for a long time, I assumed that when people ask me, it's because they didn't know. But let's be honest, the Bible only speaks on divorce in about three places, and it says about the same thing in all three places. You all know what the Bible says about divorce. It's forbidden. There are some very few exceptions, but it's forbidden. It should be rare, and especially for Christians. It's just forbidden. So although I've tried to answer the question, and people have asked me the question for, for years and years and years now, I've reached a whole new conclusion. The, the problem is not that people don't know what the Bible says about divorce. Everybody knows what the Bible says about divorce. The problem is not that people don't know what the Bible says about divorce. The problem is that people don't know what the Bible says about getting through hard times. You understand me? 
You've got a couple going through a hard time, and they think that divorce is the way to end the hardship. It's usually not the way at all. The problem is you have people who don't know what the Bible says about suffering. People don't know what the Bible says about trouble and getting through hard times. They think that the answer is divorce, but I'm telling you, divorce is not your answer. You need to learn what the Word of God says about getting through hard times. It's probably the key to marriage. So what does the Bible say about hard times? Whether you're married or not, I'm talking to you now to understand. Everybody needs to understand this. Number one, the world is broken. Do I need to tell you this? You watch Fox News, don't you? The world is broken. It's broken. It's fallen. It's as a result of our sin, but the world is ruined. It is a hopeless place. It is a loveless place. It is a place where there will never be peace until Jesus brings peace. The world is broken, and you are going to come to know this brokenness personally. Don't be surprised by it. The world is full of suffering, and in your lifetime, you're going to bear your part of it. You're going to know trouble. Jesus himself, these are red letters here. Jesus in John chapter 16 says, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. In this life, you will have trouble, Jesus says. You're going to have trouble. You're going to have all kinds of problems, some of them worse than anything you can possibly imagine. And in those times, you're going to say, why is this happening to me? And I'm telling you, it happens because you're here on earth. You're here on earth, and the world is a fallen and messed up place, and you're going to live through that. Lots of times out of no fault of your own, no choice. I mean, it's just stuff's going to happen. You're going to get sick. Family members will get sick. Family members will die. There will be car accidents. There will be miscarriages. All kinds of horrible things happen here on earth, and you're on earth. You're going to have trouble. Now, some people can make trouble all by themselves. You don't need a car wreck, man. Your whole life is a car wreck, and you do it to yourself, and that's something altogether different. I mean, when you cause your own misery, please don't stand up and say, God, why are you doing this to me? I mean, God has nothing to do with the way some of you blow up your life. I mean, you do this to yourself, for yourself, by yourself. But I'm talking about the basic kind of trouble that afflicts everybody. Here on earth, you're going to have trouble. And in your marriage, you're going to have trouble. It's going to be very hard. You'll have seasons of marriage that are easy and wonderful and a blessing. You will also have long seasons that are very, very difficult and some seasons that are darker than anything you could have possibly imagined. It's life. Here on earth, Jesus says, you will have many trials and sorrows. That's the first thing you need to know about trouble. You're going to have it and your marriage will experience it. The second thing you've got to know, God is with you in your trouble. God is with you in all of your troubles. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, this is God speaking. He says, say the word, never, never will I fail you, never will I leave you. Interestingly, the Greek word here that's translated never, it means never. 
never will I fail you. In, in other words, in every single situation, when you put your life in God's hands, God will not fail you. In every single situation, when you need God to be with you, he will never leave you. Never means never. You will never in your life be in a place so dark that God's light cannot reach you. You will never in your life be in a place so lonesome that God's love cannot overwhelm you. Do you understand? Never will I fail you. Never will I leave you. Now, people will fail you and people will leave you. Your husband might leave you. God never will. Your wife may fail you. God never will. That's why you must give your heart first to God. You must anchor yourself in the God who will never fail, never leave you, will always satisfy your soul because every single person is going to let you down, including at some point your spouse. People will fail you. God never does. Psalm chapter 119 verse 50 says, your promise comforts me in all my troubles. Your promise. Your promise? Don't I need more than a promise? I mean, if I got real trouble and I need real comfort, don't I need more than a promise? Not if it's God doing the promising. You understand, the one who promises is faithful and he will do it. Everything he promises. You don't have to wonder if God will answer your prayer if you're asking for something he's already promised you. Never will I leave you. Never will I fail you. Your promise comforts me in all my troubles. So here's the thing. You get through hard times in marriage by exercising hopeful trust in a faithful God. I mean, if there's a secret, this is it. If there's one thing you need to know for your whole life of marriage, this is it. You get through hard times by exercising hopeful trust in a faithful God. It it is God. It is God who has brought you together, and if you're going to stay together, it will be God that keeps you together. Oh, Brother Tim, you don't understand. You don't understand how hard marriage can be, Brother Tim. You're all happy with your preacher's wife, and y'all just don't understand. You, You don't know nothing about my life or my marriage. But I can tell you one thing. I can tell you one thing. In my life, I've seen couples divorce. You have too. But I have never seen a couple divorce where both partners, both of them, were clinging to God. It does not happen, people. It does not happen. And I'm saying it takes two. But I've never seen a couple divorce when both partners were fully committed and fully devoted to the Lord. It does not happen. People may let go, but God never does. God never does. So if you're seeking him and if you put your life in his hands and you put your marriage in his hands and your spouse does the very same thing, do you understand? Your marriage is gonna last. You get through hard times by exercising hopeful trust in a faithful God. It's not about your wife. It's not about your husband. It's about your God. You understand? But, but, but one more thing, we're Christians, we're Christians, and, and I assume that if you got married in church and, and you go to church, I assume that it's a Christian marriage, and that means that Jesus changes the way you understand and endure suffering. Jesus changes everything. The people out in the world, people on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, they live their lives very differently. They, they see the world differently, but, but we're the people of God. We're Christians, And Jesus changes the way we see marriage, by and large, because Jesus changes the way we see suffering. Go with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 says this. 
we can, say the word, we can rejoice when we run into problems and trials because for we know that suffering produces. Okay, we just stop right there. Suffering produces. What what does that mean? Suffering does something. In the life of a Christian, suffering is productive. That doesn't mean you have to want it. It doesn't mean you ought to pray for it. It just means that when it happens, when suffering comes upon you, it's productive. God's going to do something in your suffering. Now, again, people who don't know Jesus, they can't say this. They don't know about this. But, but you're a Christian, right? And the fact that you know Jesus means you know something that other people don't know. You know what God can do in suffering. It, it, it's productive. God does something. So we know that suffering produces, first, perseverance. What's perseverance? Sticking with it. Yeah, very simply. Perseverance is staying with it. Young people these days, old people these days, they don't know how to stick with anything. They don't stick with anything. They don't persevere. As soon as things get hard, they're out. But understand, suffering produces perseverance. In other words, for believers, the only way to learn how to get through hard stuff is to have to go through some hard stuff. So literally, there are things in in life that you have to know that have to be developed in you that cannot be developed any other way other than through suffering. So sometimes God is going to allow you to go through really, really hard times because hard times are productive. In those hard times, something can grow in you that can't grow any other way. And the first thing you've got to learn is perseverance. You've got to learn how to do hard things. You've got to learn how to stay when it gets difficult to stay. You've got to learn how to forgive. You've got to learn how to keep on going, how to keep on working, how to keep on loving. You've just got to learn to stay with it. You can't quit. And the only way to learn how to not quit is by not quitting. So suffering produces perseverance. Keep going. Perseverance produces character. That's important. Character. You become a different kind of person through persevering through suffering that, that wouldn't happen otherwise. And I'm not just saying you're going to become a better person. You're going to, become, you're going to be a better neighbor. You're going to be a better husband. Hopefully. I mean, we're all waiting on that, honestly. But, 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 but truthfully, when we're talking about Christians, it's not just becoming a better neighbor like Mr. Rogers was a good neighbor. We're talking about having my character transformed so that I can be more like who? Christ. I'm a Christian. And, and, and my entire life is about this transformational process by which I'm becoming more like Jesus every day. That's the reason for my life. It's why when you're saved, God doesn't just take you straight to heaven. You need to live through this life so that the transforming uh, uh, power of his grace can be, can be at work in your life so that you become like Christ. We call it sanctification, being made holy. So so understand, the purpose of your life is not happiness, it's holiness. And the purpose of your marriage is not happiness, it's holiness. It is not so that you can live happily ever after, it's that you might pursue holiness ever after. Do you understand? Now, I'm not saying you won't be happy, but if in your life and in your marriage you pursue happiness but not holiness, you will have neither. 
But if in your life and marriage you will pursue holiness, you will have both. Holiness and happiness. Holiness is the point of your life and the point of your marriage. And that has to do with the transformation of your character. The more like Christ you become, the better wife you're going to be. The more like Christ you become, the better husband you're going to be. It's about becoming like Christ. And whatever problems you're having in your marriage right now, I don't know what the problems are, but I can tell you, if you're having problems, somebody's not loving like Christ. Somebody's not living like Christ. It's the character of Christ that's being formed in us. So back with me. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. Paul says there are three great things. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love, no doubt. But, but you need faith and hope. I mean, I mean, they're the other two great things. And when a marriage really gets in trouble, it's, it's usually the hope that dies. It's the hope. Hope is that quality from God that lets me believe that no matter how miserable today is, tomorrow could be better. That's hope. Understand? It gives me a reason for getting out of bed. It gives me a reason for, for thinking that it's worth all the effort because it's going to get better. It's, it's going to take us somewhere. And, and that's why hope matters so much. If people are hopeless, they just give up. But, but hope is something that comes out of the character that is formed in perseverance and suffering. Understand, this hope is not something you're born with. It's something you learn. It's something that is developed in you as you have to go through dark nights and hard times. We know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his, say the word, love. Shoot fire. It's a long verse. I wanted love up here. I mean, I've had to go through a whole lot of mess to get to love. Did you notice that? I mean, the junk we had to walk through to get down here to love. Wouldn't it just be easier if we had love up here? That's not how life works, and it's not how marriage works. You understand? Love, the real love, the love that's poured out from the very heart of God, the kind of love that lasts and sustains your marriage, that's not something you have at the front end. I know that you felt in love on the wedding day when you stood at the altar, and she looked gorgeous in her gown, and you looked awesome in your tuxedo, but what you shared was just the very preview, just the, the tiniest taste of what real love is. Real love is what you b- begin to develop and experience after you've been through some things and lots of couples won't stay through enough things to ever learn how to love each other they don't stay through enough to learn how to persevere so that they can ever have hope and begin to reflect more and more the love and life of Christ suffering changes everything for the Christian and marriage is going to be suffering Christ makes all the difference. One more verse. It's from Psalm 15. This is a hard one. It's hard for some of you, I know, and I, and I don't mean to, to, to be heavy, but Psalm 15 starts out with this question. Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? 
the question is, God, who are your kinds of people? Who are the people that are most like you? Who, who are the people that can come and worship freely? And in this long list of the kind of people that, that worship the Lord on his sanctuary freely is this little phrase in verse 4. It, it says, those who keep their promises even when it hurts. Marriage is a promise. You know what promises are for, right? I mean, they're for keeping. I don't give you a nickel for anybody who can keep a promise when it's not hard to keep the promise. It's, the promise has its true value when it hurts, when it's tested. You stay married long enough, it's going to be tested. Blessed are those who keep their promise, even when it hurts. So place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is strong as death, its passion as enduring as the grave. Love flashes like fire the brightest kind of fire, the very fire of God. Marriage is hard. And in certain seasons, it feels unbearable. But if you will stay together, if you will stay with God, you will learn that God is a faithful God who will bring you through this season and into the next season. You will learn that he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. At the end of all these things you go through, what he gives you is an outpouring of love from his own heart. If you'll stay. Pray with me. God, there's so many in this house, so many, Lord, in the sound of my voice who suffer. Some suffer alone, some suffer privately. But for many of us, Lord, if we suffer alone, we bring that suffering into our marriage, God. And it is so hard to suffer in marriage. It's hard to be alone when we felt like we were supposed to have a partner. It's Hard, Lord, when we feel criticized and judged and rejected and abandoned in our own house. But God, this is exactly the kind of trouble that you said we'd have. It's the kind of trouble that you knew that would be a part of marriage. And God, just help us in the darkest of the nights, Lord, not to give up hope that, that the sun could shine tomorrow. Lord, when... Today, all I have in my heart is pain and frustration and, and bitterness. Lord, help me never to give up hope that you could yet take my heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh and fill it with love. God, you and you alone can change a husband or change a wife. You and you alone can shine light into the blackest darkness. God, I pray that couples in this house, couples in this church, couples in this community, will love you enough that they might begin to learn how to love each other. 
I pray, Lord, that your faithfulness will be the foundation upon which they learn to be faithful to each other. Lord, a whole lot of married people just don't know how to stay with it to find out, Lord, that troubles don't last, but love does. It always does. We ask you, Lord, to give us grace and peace. Bless all those who suffer today. Bless all those who suffer in the name of love. We pray these things for Jesus' sake.